a podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Boss Man. Yo. Hey, this is a Q&A episode inspired by the thoughtful, engaging emails from listeners of this pod sent to our email addresses. Yours is Ian at Tropical MBA, or is it at Hotmail.com? I can't remember. Yahoo. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is Dan at TropicalMBA.com. We appreciate your feedback, your emails. Let's get jumping into the first one. Here's a question that I thought was really interesting, Ian, because... There was some caveats. A subject we get a lot is questions about solopreneurship. So we're going to dig into this. Gabriel writes, I'm a solopreneur who finds the show valuable. Personally, I'd love to hear more episodes along the four-hour workweek lines of running an impactful business of one. I want to pause the question right here and reflect on this idea of the four-hour workweek lines and solopreneurship and why these things have come to be connected in our community. I think one of the really interesting things is seeing how the principles of the book have cashed out over time. Sometimes specifically what a book says or what the author intends isn't what people take away from it. And that's precisely what has happened in the case of the four hour work week. So just after Gabriel sent us this question, Ian, I was listening to a recent episode of Tim's wonderful podcast with guest Cal Newport where they were digging into some of the original intentions of the four hour work week and how there was some confusion by both of them about how the book was taken in some cases by readers like us and maybe even Gabriel. The setup of their recent discussion of the four hour work week's legacy was that the book was something that needed to be said to overworked entrepreneurs and tech employees in San Francisco. The message was we are running out of time in the day. We cannot respond to emails. There's no distinction between nine to five and 24 hours a day now. My Blackberry, my Palm Pilot is completely blowing up and I need an antidote. I need a new productivity system. Bam, here comes the four hour work week. It's 2007. It's South by Southwest. Tim Ferriss says, hey, everybody can put an autoresponder. You can let little bad things happen. And that was a really important message for overworked tech employees, for entrepreneurs with online businesses that were working all around the clock. They needed to hear that message in 2007. Fast forward a few years, Tim and Cal start to muse about the fact that in the early teens, people started to use the prescriptions and the processes in the four hour work week to work harder, that they didn't actually get that the point was to step back and to enjoy life, to take many retirements, to focus on the few things that are truly going to make your business effective rather than the thousands of things that you feel compelled to do all day long because you're getting texted and you're emailed and Ian Hot Wheels at yahoo.com sent you an email about that thing that he needs you to do. When I'm listening to this, Ian, I'm like a kid in the back of the class with my hand up saying, oh, call me, call me. I got an answer. I got an answer for this. I know what this means. And I wrote about this on the 10 year anniversary of the four hour work week, that there was a really interesting phenomenon with the four hour work week principles. Four hour work week principles 
came from an entrepreneur, an Ivy League graduate, people that were already doing really, really well. Rich people. And so there is this sense that, hey, if I can reduce the amount of time I'm putting into these ventures, if I can be more effective than just more productive, that I can enjoy my wealth in more interesting ways. I can already be wealthy. And that's one of the messages of the four hour work week. Now, here's the thing. There was a split in the audience because there was a lot of us. I think there's a technical term for it. Broke mother effers. Broke mother <laughs> yeah, I was effers. Say, poor people. <laughs> broke people. There was a lot of broke people. And my message to Tim and to Cal is like, most of us that read your book were broke. Most of us that read your book could only dream of a six figure job. This was yeah. like the apex of a hypothetical career that we didn't even have yet. Tim wrote the book. The opening vignette is him being stressed out by making $40,000 a month from his own internet business. Making $40,000 a month from an internet business is a dream that some of us will put 10 years of work in to achieve. And this is the starting point of the four hour work week. I wrote in an essay on the 10 year anniversary. I put it in maybe more diplomatic terms. The problem that we're talking about this confusion that was expressed in a recent four hour work week podcast stems from a split in the book's audience. Many of Tim's principles are aimed at overworked business owners or those who have lots of experience in career cachet. And again, even though Tim wasn't in the tech industry for many, many years, he had career cachet in part because Ivy League education, in part because of geolocation, in part because Tim is really freaking smart. In other words, Tim is talking to people who have a lot of enterprising know-how and other resources like industry relationships that allow them to make up for it. But the book's audience extended well beyond the well-heeled and gainfully employed. It also appealed to those of us who didn't have businesses, established cash flows, or other traditional advantages. So if Tim and Cal would have called on me from the back of the room with my arm up to answer the question, why were so many people reading the four-hour work week in 2011, 2012, 2013, all of a sudden started working harder, all of a sudden started working 10 or 12-hour days, is because we believed in the dream that the book sold, that we all of a sudden had a path to wealth in front of us that was legible and made sense to us in the internet era. And we were going to go after it. And to make up the ground from where they were to where we were, that's not going to happen by doing just a little bit of work every day. Typically, you're going to have to work more. And that was one of the uh, big takeaways that many of us felt like maybe we sloughed off in high school and college. Maybe we went to a different kind of career. And now all of a sudden we read from people in San Francisco that there's this new way of achieving some of the things we've all dreamed about our whole lives. And so in order to make up that ground, now all of a sudden we got to put a lot more work in. So that's my little opening salvo here on some of the legacies of the four hour work week. Do you want to respond to any of that uh, word cluster before we move on to the rest of Gabriel's question? That's interesting to see how different things can be interpreted in different ways. And especially the author of the piece is interpreting his work much differently, I think, than a lot of the people that read it. My main takeaway from that, Dan, is your starting point in life is important. And it shouldn't be disregarded. A lot of us have advantages. A lot of us have disadvantages. And sometimes it takes a lot more work to try and gain up the ground that you may have lost through birth that you were not there for. Depending on where you're born, 
economic status, all different kinds of factors. But yeah, I think um, picking up this book and reading it was super important for us. We certainly didn't have the starting point, but then again, there's certainly people that started even below us. We all should be grateful for our starting points because we're we're alive is one. Exactly. <laughs> and the worst thing you could be is like resentful or try to claw people back. That You know what I mean? You know what the worst thing is, is when people squander their starting point, right? You should respect the fact that you've got a leg up and yep. do the most with it. And that's what a lot of the successful people we admire actually did. They started far ahead. They're seeing far ahead. They're showing us our potential future. And so I respect and admire that. The... Thing I think that's important for everybody to understand is just to try to tap into what that starting point actually is so that you have a more accurate picture of a potential reality and how you can put the ideas to work. So back to Gabriel's question. So back to Gabriel's question. He's asking Ian and myself, the hire your next person guys, to talk about solopreneurship and the four-hour workweek path to entrepreneurship. So I'm going to absorb back into his question and he has some prompts for us. So for example, how would I diversify income streams as a solopreneur? By which I mean just limiting my enterprise to just a few staff members or contractors. There's this idea that you're gonna go out and build an enterprise, Ian, that's becoming an entrepreneur, building a business. But then there's also the solopreneur route where you can have a few contractors here and there and make a really good living and perhaps even build some assets without bringing on the headache of a whole company and the stresses that might or might not entail. He also asks about making the shift from client sessions to productize services for ease and sustainability. A lot of solopreneurs make their living or live their four-hour workweek lifestyle by charging for their time. And this method of making living the four-hour workweek dream, so to speak, comes into some of the same challenges that having a job does. And so sometimes there's this idea that you want to move up the value chain and productize and create more products instead of selling your time and expertise. And specifically how health practitioners can move their businesses more location independent. I found this angle really interesting, Ian, because you can insert really health practitioner for any sort of sunk cost or knowledge base that is like traditionally thought of as location dependent, but now you don't want to just put a ton about doctoring or physical therapy or carpentry, and you don't want to just drop it all and start selling affiliate ads on the webs. So you want to try to bring along your earlier investment and skill set and bring it into a more location independent environment. So Ian and I have a lot of thoughts about those first three, but we're actually in a situation where we can reach out to members or listeners of the show, members of our community, the DC, who have direct experience with the things we don't know specifically about. And that's in this case, the case about health practitioners. I am Dr. Alexis Shields. I'm a licensed naturopathic doctor and I practice functional medicine. And although I'm trained as a primary care professional, I'm not currently practicing as a GP. I now do virtual health consulting with busy professionals pretty much worldwide. I currently live in Lisbon, Portugal. And I am passionate about teaching people how to use their personal health data to make more informed decisions about how they eat and what type of fitness routines they do and what supplements they take. And so I've developed this in-depth analysis of blood tests, which I use to really help to create a clear picture of where that person's health is now and how they can either maintain that or they it can help us to get them where they want to go. So how I got to this point is in 2013, 
I, my husband and I packed up all of our belongings and our practices that we were in private practice at that time and decided to take some time off to do some traveling. My husband grew up in Southeast Asia. So we moved to Thailand, to Chiang Mai, to kind of start that adventure. And we met this huge group of entrepreneurs that really changed everything for us. And during that time, people started asking me if they could pay me to help them go or sort through some of the health challenges they were having, including a lot of testing and blood work and things that they didn't understand. And so after, you know, the second, third, fourth, fifth person asked me this question, I started realizing that there was a real opportunity here. And that's where everything started. So in response to the question, how can health practitioners move their business more location independent? I think we're in a really unique position right now, especially as medical professionals. A, a positive thing that came from COVID is that telemedicine and speaking virtually with any type of health consultant now is widely accessible and accepted. And there's so many nice tools that would have been really, really great to have a long time ago when I started doing this. So what I would do is that if I was getting started in this journey now is to think about a niche interest that you have or an area of specialty where you can offer advice or a second opinion or even just clarity. Clarity is extremely valuable in the healthcare space and providing clarity is essentially what I'm doing with my clients now. I'm putting together the big picture using their basic health data to support that picture. And throughout the years of working with clients all over the world, I've helped them to find a lot of people who we needed a, you know, opinions from like dentists or trainers or therapists or dating coaches or geneticists or oncologists or gastroenterologists, basically the list goes on and on. So there's a lot of room in this space for your skills that you have. And I can guarantee you that there are a lot of people out there looking for your unique perspective and expertise. Hey, hey, it's Dr. Emil here. My background is a medical doctor never really looked at anything outside of being a doctor in medicine. And then after a few years, I realized that I wanted more freedom. I wanted more potential for wealth. I wanted to help people in my own way out of the bureaucracy and limitations of working in a highly political red taped health system like the National Health Service. So what I ended up doing was leaving the medical field and working as a health coach. By doing this, I could live anywhere in the world. I could carry out my, my calls, my consultations over Zoom, and I could build a business like any other coaching business. Now, during the transition stage, I started to move more remote. I started to travel. And one of the ways that I did that was by doing online medical work. So I was writing articles and reporting blood tests online for a company called Medichecks in the UK. And this allowed me to work partially for the NHS, doing shifts in the emergency department and supplement my income with this online work, which I could do from anywhere in the world. Apart from being a coach and going totally independent, I also found that I could do actual medical work using my medical license online. And certainly after COVID and, and kind of remote consultations, there's much, much more precedent for that. But that is at the very least two ways, potentially three ways of doing it. So to summarize, one is 
use your skills, but not as a doctor, for example. So if you're a, a physio or something else, then not using that license, which frees you up to kind of do things your own way, but using that for authority to then coach in a different, potentially parallel area. You just want to make sure with this that you are not pretending to do medical work, but without the license. I was very clear that I was a nutrition coach. I did qualify as a doctor, but I wasn't working in the capacity of a doctor. The other way is to work remotely alongside your normal licensed job, which is what I did with MediChecks. And the key with that was that I had to remain licensed to be able to work as a doctor remotely reporting the blood tests, which then I had to forego once I gave up my license to practice entirely. The reason being that maintaining a license to practice required me to do certain things, which I didn't want to do. I had to go back to the UK for that and I didn't want to do that. And then the final way is to actually find a way to do your actual job remotely. And that will vary a lot among specialties, locations, and, and various things like that. So the second question is whether the only path for medical practitioners is to be solopreneurs because health practitioners have one specific skill or domain. Now, this relates to the first question where if you are a medical practitioner using your license, then it generally has to be you who's doing the work. And to be honest, for me, that was one of the reasons that I left that because I didn't want to swap my time for money. And certainly now as a coach, I have coaches working for me. So I become the brand, I become the person who came up with the, the process and I've hired coaches to do the vast majority of the coaching. And these guys are amazing coaches. They're, I mean, I would argue better than me at coaching because they spend all their time doing it, being very good at it. The other thing to do is to go the personal brand route where you build a brand around your area of expertise, your specialty, and you use your license and your experience for authority. And then, to be honest, the world is your oyster in terms of how you can build a business around that, whether that's selling courses, selling coaching, selling products, supplements, whatever else. And that's actually another thing which I've done is I've teamed up with a supplement company to, to build a supplement brand around my name and my authority, Dr. Emil Nutrition. So that's another way of, of doing it. And to be honest, the more you get into business and, and all of this, the more the options open up. The longer I stay in this game and the more I learn, the further I move away from one, medicine, and two, being a, a solopreneur, because a world of options opens up. One of the other, for example, things which I, which I started to do was to work with a fellow DC at Itamar. We put a podcast together and um, we briefly worked together on, on his course and his, his product. And that's just an example of, as I built up skills, leveraging my medical degree and my license, I could then start branching into different areas. And actually my most recent project is helping other online coaches build their businesses through a community. Uh, the way that I did it was very logical, very kind of step-by-step. Step. I started as a full-time doctor working in a geographical location. I reduced the number of hours I was doing and took up some remote work, which leveraged my license. Then I built a business which allowed me to entirely be location independent, though I could no longer use my license. So I kind of let it 
I parked it on, I put it on ice as it were. And then over time I m removed myself from the, from being the, the only coach and hired some extra coaches. So removed the time for money. And then from there, I've kind of leveraged my growing business knowledge and skills to uh, build a personal brand, to start other businesses, and then to further separate myself from what I was initially doing, kind of a health practitioner, solo entrepreneur, while still using my authority and experience as a doctor, though much, much less directly. I hope that makes sense. And any other questions, I'm very happy to help. A couple things to pick up on that specifically. There is this concept of the sunk cost fallacy. You know, you've spent a lot of money to get a medical qualification to really dig in and question whether that alone is, quote, compelling you to use that field as an entrepreneur. That's totally understandable on the one hand. But on the other hand, if you hang out with a bunch of entrepreneurs, you'll find that a lot of us dropped a lot of money on a college education that we're not using at all. So I think in the medical fields in particular, there's such a clean relationship between what you learned and how you're charging for that, that it can maybe be a little bit harder to get away from that sunk cost than in, you know, my case where I learned like how to read books and write essays about Socrates. No one's paying for that junk. I do think that pointing out this idea of like the sunk cost is really interesting in digging into that, whether, you know, what's more important, like the market opportunity or like what you've already invested in. Monday. Monday. What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, urgency persistence, auto dealership desperation. And then tell me you could use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just the hard driving E and closing showing at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service this Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. Another thing that Emil brings up and that I originally thought when I read Gabriel's email was the concept of ease and sustainability. I think there's an interesting dynamic here where the simplicity of the concept of solopreneurship is so appealing on the page. But when I really sit and think about the people that I've known over the last 15 years in this journey, Ian, very few people that have robust, easy, amazing cash flow engines do it as solopreneurs. And I think it has something to do with starting point. So if you are a successful entrepreneur and you want to downshift into being a podcaster and investor, that's a great way to go. If you have exited three or four businesses over your career, and now all of a sudden you want to write a book and do some consulting, great. But if you just got out of school and you want to pay off some debts, but you don't want to be too stressed out about it, doing that solo can not only be more stressful, but it can slow you down for obvious reasons. And 
the sustainability part is concerning to me because small cash flows are typically very fragile. And so building them up such that people can support them at their larger volume, you'll be able to weather more storms and ultimately have less stress with your income over the years. Again, something that people a little further along will sell you, this vision of solopreneurship. It's often sold in coaching industries too. Look at me, I'm the big coach. You can be the little coach and it's going to be all easy in cash flow. So sustainability, when you say that, Dan, it makes me think about just like my personal energy. And I think one of the things I've really appreciated throughout the years, kind of always having a team is like the work is, is distributed. It's shared among many. When I think about sustainability, I think about like, I'm staring down the barrel of all this work, all on my own, all the time, like no breaks, no rest. Sure. For our work week, you, like you can put up an autoresponder and be away for two months and it'll be clever. But I have really not seen too many businesses that are run by solopreneurs that you don't have to eventually get back into the game and wear all the hats. So you're shipping the product, you're making the product, you're creating the marketing, you're dealing with customer service, all these things. Like if you have a business with any kind of scale, there's no way that you're going to be able to do all that kind of stuff. And the main objection to this is like, well, I don't want to have to manage people because managing people is stressful. I've said this for like 10 years, that more stressful for me than managing people more stressful than that is doing all those things and not being able to scale your income. Yeah. So if you found yourself in a position, like you said, Dan, where you've exited a couple of businesses and now you want to write a book, you don't really care about your income or like it's not as severe if it's less. Or you're rich. <laughs> or you're rich, exactly. Then go for it. If you're trying to figure out how to make a bunch of money, like I've never seen it work as a solopreneur, really. There's very few examples. On the fringes, I'd say professional actors. Somebody that can come in, make millions of dollars for a television show, and then like go out and then come back in as they kind of please, right? And so they're kind of living off this image. For me, the sustainability of the work just, it's crushing to, to try and have to figure out for me how to do all these things. Because the next thing that we're going to talk about here is assets. If, if what you want to do, and I think the point of this show a lot is to convey to people through our work here, we are creating assets and assets are essentially things that live on their own independently of you and they have value. So I started Dynamite Jobs. It's a remote hiring platform. Here he goes with the sales pitch, everybody. We go. Look at this guy. He's a pro. We work, we work on it every day. We have a growing team. Okay. If everyone stops doing what they're doing tomorrow, we still have an asset. We have something that people want. If you as a solopreneur stop doing what you're doing, whether it's coaching or drawing illustrations or whatever it is, as soon as your last illustration's gone, sold, that's it. There's no more. And I think on this show, we talk about a lot, but the goal for me here, Dan, is to create assets, to create things that are continuations of ourselves, of our creativities, of our work that stand on their own that other people want. It's interesting. One of the interesting little tactics that really took off back in the day in four-hour work week was the twice-a-day autoresponder. It's almost crazy for me to go back and read, but I guess I've just been in a different universe for so long. It was like, hey, you don't need to respond to emails right away. How about you put an autoresponder that says, I check email at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. I'm thinking to myself, my God, like that's even intense, like in 2022. But the concept was, is that you weren't just chit-chatting with everybody all, all day. You now had a few hours at least to do something, to build something. And that's where the assets come from, even in a day job, not just talking back and forth with people all day long. In our previous product company, Dan, we used to shut down the phones at 3 p.m. 
Uh, so we're open from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. And the reason for that was like, we had real stuff to do. Like 3 p.m. to like 5 p.m. is like, <laughs> this is where we actually build the company. Now, what's interesting is Gabriel sent us this email and he's like, gosh, these guys still want to talk about their thing. They don't want to talk about solopreneurship. So I tried to put my nose to the grindstone here, Gabriel. And again, we just appreciate the email, Gabriel, that you're engaging intellectually with this podcast. Take all of our advice always as a grain of salt. We don't know your situation. But a thought that occurred to me was, okay, so if we're right about the fact that like basically this solopreneurship dream is sold to you from rich people by what rich people were doing. And it's like, hey, if you're rich, then by all means, be a solopreneur. But if you want to get rich, maybe not the best strategy. I do think it's possible to be an exception. The first thing I thought of, Ian, is if it's true that you need to build an asset and that's the liability of being a solopreneur, then actually going from like coaching, service and client work to becoming more productized is a very bad strategy because you get caught in the middle and you get caught in wasting your time on delivery, product management, and client management. In other words, productized services are too much work for a solopreneur with a few freelancers to get done. So how much you respond to that? One thing I would consider doing if I was given the challenge of being a solopreneur is I would only build assets. So for example, I'd build a YouTube channel or I build a TikTok account or I build a powerful blog where I wrote on it every single day and just really try to build out a channel or an audience and then finding highly efficient ways, deals, affiliate partnerships, whatever, to get me cash flowing that first year, such that less than 20% of my time would be spent on delivery or monetization and 80% of my time would be spent on building that asset. I think that's kind of the way to go. And then the other, if you're going to be polarized, the other way you could go is you could just be a perpetual deal maker. So you only make deals like salesperson or real estate agent or right, you know, you're going down the road of like, I make connections. Craigslist flipper. Exactly. And so you go completely polarized, Gabriel. The idea that you're going to be somewhere in the middle where it's, I do blog content on Monday and then I make a YouTube version on Tuesday and then I do sales calls on Wednesday and I deliver on Friday. Like I just wouldn't even go down that route because- one of the things we even feel, the amount of complexity you introduce into a business multiplies and gets out of hand really, really quick. And that does happen with clients and productized services. And if you go down that route without a strong vision of team, of a strong P&L of how you're going to build out those systems and how they're going to build and cash flow over time, it's just not worth going down that route as a solopreneur. One thing to mention, Dan, is uh, like in the early 2010s, knew a bunch of people that started selling products on Amazon. Like, you know, I think probably a lot of listeners on the show started doing that. We're making great money as a solopreneur, basically sourcing products, coming up with products, putting them on Amazon. Talking to people over the last couple of years, like basically all the those products and those people have disappeared, meaning like they couldn't hack it anymore because all these big companies came in, essentially knocked off their products or supply chain or whatever happened. But these people aren't in business anymore. Pretty much most of the people that I talked to that were doing this solo. Now, there's a couple of people that like turn it into really great enterprises and they're the companies that bought these companies or put these solopreneurs out of business. But I mentioned this because I think that the nature of the internet and these internet-based businesses are changing so rapidly that even like 10 years ago, if you're doing something that worked, it doesn't work now. So it's another thing to mention, I think, about the fragility of these solopreneurship ventures is that a lot of times they can get wiped off the map just through market conditions. 
there's not too many things that are going on on the internet today that went on 20 years ago. The same way that you can't sit in a ceramic shop on Main Street anymore and turn out bowls, you can't do the same thing on the internet now. Like it's just changing too rapidly. So I think like through our careers, we have to be agile. I like that. It's down the road. I was like, my mind went a different direction, which is like, there are people who are extremely talented with the internet, whether they're ad buyers or they're developers or they're people who took the time to learn about crypto and they can write a white paper about it or whatever. There's ways that you can take an opportunist gamer approach to the internet and get launched. So maybe, yeah, ICOs aren't a thing anymore, but a lot of people who wrote those ICOs made a couple bucks and then they went on to the next thing. And that's a reasonable way to be a solopreneur as well. Just the uh, perennial hustler. In summation, the four hour work week is a really powerful set of principles taken differently by all different kinds of people. And I think that the implications for the book, the way people applied those principles and built businesses based off of them are a lot different than they were presented in the book. And we have an article at our blog that explores the 10-year anniversary of that. You can dig into 10 other ideas resulting in that. And I hesitate to say any of this is final. We're just using Gabriel's wonderful question as a way to explore some of these ideas and how they might be changing over the years. But I guess one of the summations I have here is if we were asked this question seven years ago, I think we would have answered it a lot differently. And I think that's kind of interesting that some of these ideas are evolving. And maybe I'm even becoming a little bit less sympathetic to the idea of the one-man business than I was seven years ago, even though it feels like it's easier to do that nowadays. There's plenty of people that we know that run a business with just part-time contractors. That's much more doable nowadays. Take what we're saying with a grain of salt and proceed with reckless abandon and energy. Good luck, Gabriel. We appreciate your email. Ian, we got a wonderful email from a listener. I just wanted to read it. Uh, I love these serendipities that happen as a result of doing this podcast in the fall of 2015. And I quote, in the fall of 2015, I found myself sitting in Chicago rush hour traffic thinking, is this really it? I was fresh out of college with a CPA license and had landed a job at a big accounting firm. Sounds fancy. Very quickly, I realized that the managers and partners didn't pass corner office test, classic TMBA concept. I knew I had to find another path, enter the TMBA podcast. I tried out content writing on the side for a while, but I realized that wasn't going to be it for me either. You and your team then introduced me to Taylor Pearson and I got the getapprenticeship.com email list. I found myself applying to be an e-commerce apprentice as my first employee of a quote company which was really just a guy in a bathrobe selling stuff. So there you go. The solopreneurship dream is a reality. Today, I am leading our company as the chief operating officer, and we are a mid-eight-figure Amazon seller with 35 employees. I have been reflecting on the past few years of my life recently and realized that none of it would have been possible without your podcast. Shout out to this Anon listener for the beautiful vignette into how it really gets done. Part of the reason I wanted to read this, Ian, is to motivate us, but mostly because I think it's an interesting reflection on the question of solopreneurship and a really interesting way to proceed as like the enterprising individual, keeping an open mind about what's valuable. Hey, you know what's really, really valuable? Being the chief operating officer for an eight-figure Amazon seller. That's a hell of a job. That's a better, more stress-free existence than running a crazy little company in your bathrobe sometimes. 
And that's something to think about. One of the major cultural contexts that's changed. I look back to these early tech jobs that the four-hour work week was so allergic to. You put up an autoresponder saying, I, I won't get back to you for two hours and everybody's worried about it. I can't imagine. I don't have friends who run companies like that. Okay. That's not how we run companies in the remote first era. Another way of saying this is jobs have gotten a lot better. Yeah. Right. Working for a remote first company, spend the summer in Europe, going for week vacations in Asia. These things are all possible with remote jobs nowadays. They were unthinkable in 2005 which was the context for the four-hour work week, which is when we were all having Palm Pilots, man. Like, this is a different world we live in. And so I don't know if I would be an entrepreneur in this current context. I might just go get myself one of these tasty remote jobs. Speak for yourself, sir. I would definitely still be an entrepreneur. But I I definitely (laughs) see the appeal. I mean, if you are going to be a solopreneur, meaning you don't want all the weight of a company on your shoulders... Well, yeah, maybe a job is the way to do it these days because uh, you can certainly get paid a lot. And like you said, you can be location independent. So who's more free, the solopreneur or the COO running a mid-eight-figure company that's uh, remote selling products on Amazon? I'd say that the probably the COO has probably more earning potential and more flexibility, perhaps. So I do think it's definitely worth questioning, Dan, whether or not you should take this path these days. And certainly this didn't exist for us when we were first coming out of college, like we kind of had no choice. It was like work a crappy location dependent job with our estate degrees or start a business. You know, what's interesting is like a lot of times too, like in 2005, these fancy San Francisco jobs existed in fancy San Francisco for people that went to fancy schools. Now, you know, internet startups that are badass are becoming more democratized. Right before this very call, I was just on a sales call with a super entrepreneurial employee of an amazing company with just a few hundred people. And think about how he's doing networking calls all day long, representing this incredible technology and brand versus the bathrobe person with a Like your network's going to be different. And so then when you do decide to start your own enterprise, now you can build on all these relationships, all these amazing conferences that were paid for you to go to, all these amazing skill sets. It's really hard to do this stuff on your own. And so joining the right teams early in your career can be a a really smart. All right, Ian, we're going to round this episode off with a fun one. We still have so many more amazing questions to get to. So we're going to have to schedule another session in the next few days. That's Dan and Ian at tropicalmba.com. Producer Jane linked us up to the bbc.com article. I want to get your hot take on it. The pandemic put an end to required birthday cupcakes, team happy hours, and forced, quote, fun activities. Many workers are deeply relieved. (laughs) (laughs) No patience for parties. For decades, companies have, for better or worse, been working to make their offices fun places to be. But over the last 20 or 25 years, we've seen a rise of these perks that no one was considering before. Think beanbag chairs, colorful lounges, arcade games, and ping pong tables as cold uh, beer and cold brew taps. We call it the kindergarten office, where it looks more like a kindergarten classroom than a workplaces. So this is something that is started in those fancy Silicon Valley companies and has kind of gone mainstream over the past couple of decades. And post-pandemic workers are saying, get rid of it. We don't want it. What's up with workers? Why don't they want beanbag chairs and cold brew, man? What's wrong with that? Well, would you rather be in Europe for two months this year (laughs) during the summer or sitting in that chair sharing a piece of birthday cake? 
And I think the reality is that most people would rather be in Europe or at least have the freedom to choose. Now, there's a lot of these hybrid situations going on where these companies are keeping offices and locations. I could see going in once a week, maybe twice a week at the most, have some meetings, show some face, hang out. That seems to make sense to me. But ultimately, I think because we are information workers and because our work can be done anywhere, it's not mandatory. And I think people are also figuring out that their social circles can ex extend beyond the office. It used to be the case that your office was regionally located. The people that you worked with, you also lived by. They were also your friends. It was essentially your community. The sense of community has probably um, been dinged a little bit. You have to work a little bit harder to find friends, make friends, figure out what you're going to do on the weekends, perhaps. It doesn't just come from where you work, so you have to work harder at that. But I think the upside to that is that you can live anywhere, you can work anywhere, and especially if you're not from the United States or one of these countries that pays top salaries, you get to essentially earn top salaries from other locations. So it's a huge benefit to the rest of the world that remote is opening up because if you're a top developer in South America, now you get to earn a better wage than you could have at your South American office. Amazing. People don't need help having a good time. My advice, focus on people who are passionate about the work. If you're gonna do a company onsite, which hybrid companies or remote first companies need to do, don't worry about what you're gonna do that's fun, bringing everybody together. What should be fun is the opportunity once or twice a year to actually do work together. That's the point of the company. And if you run out of work to do, then just let them out of the office. Let them go have fun. They should be good at that. <laughs> they don't need your help having fun. They need your help upskilling, being great team members and building a great business. All good employees want that. And we can figure out how to find the escape room on our own time. <laughs> That's it. I'm going to escape from this podcast recording. I got work to do. All right. Bossman, thank you for joining me this week. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.